get your blade down to bone, to hard tissue, be confident in where you're putting that blade and know where you are. Raise the papillae first, so I tend to sort of raise the outer edges and round the margins because those are the bits that tear and those are the bits that you then don't want to sort of have to try and repair if they don't want to be. What you know, instrument are you using torn. to raise the papilla and then, and then beyond? <laughs> Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello, Petrusarati. I'm Jazz Gulati, and welcome back to another episode of the Protrusive Dental Podcast. This time, oral surgery, specifically how to raise cleaner flaps and the principles of raising flaps in oral surgery for exodontia. I'm joined today by Dr. Sammy Stagnell. I know you'll love his humor and his humility. He's a really humble guy. He's a consultant oral surgeon, but he's so down to earth. So I know you'll enjoy all the tips and pearls he'll share with you. The main themes that we'll cover in this episode are like, when should you raise a flap? Like I've been in the past struggling with a difficult extraction. And I'm thinking, is now the best time to raise a flap or, or should I just keep going? Should I keep luxating, elevating and maybe the tooth will come out? Or should I really start getting my handpiece and, and start raising a flap? I mean, nowadays I'm raising less and less flaps. I mean, I probably section 80 to 90% of all molars and I do it flapless. So it's something that I'm having to do less and less, but obviously for third molars, I'm raising flaps. And so I had lots to learn from Sammy as well in terms of how to make my own flaps cleaner and nicer. We're going to revise the different types of flaps and, and when to consider an envelope and when to extend beyond an envelope. And also we talk a little bit about blades. Are all blades built equally? Are there any that you should be avoiding? It was a surprise that he taught me today, which I'll be sharing with you as well. The protrusive dental pearl, it only has to be oral surgery related. So one way I feel, and I have zero evidence for this, maybe it exists, but I haven't read it, is how to reduce dry sockets. I was taught by uh, this oral surgeon in Singapore, a very simple thing, like I think most oral surgeons do this and, and they pass this on to us when, when we're learning from them as students, and I guess we fall into bad habits and we don't do it, is once you've removed the tooth, do you actually clean the site? even if you haven't raised a flap. And so something like a Mitchell's trimmer, you know that spoon end of a Mitchell's trimmer? My nurse knows, Zoe knows that after I've done extraction, I will always ask for it. So when we started working together a few years ago, she was just surprised at how every time I was doing extraction, I was asking for the Mitchell's trimmer. And then now she knows it's part of the kit when I do an extraction. So every time I take a tooth out, whether I'm raising a flap or not, I will use a spoon end of a Mitchell's trimmer and scrape, scrape, scrape. What am I scraping? I'm scraping the adjacent papillae. You know, there's plaque there, right? That causes inflammation. That's not a optimal healing environment. I'm gonna scrape the inside of the socket. I'm gonna get rid of any potential debris, any uh, granulation tissue. I'm just giving it a good clean for you know 30 seconds to two minutes if I find that it was a one I had to section and maybe there could be some bits of amalgam in there, you never know. So make your surgical sites clean and nice using something like a spoon end of a Mitchell's trimmer. Uh, and using this, I've had like two or three dry sockets the whole year. So now it's August uh, and eight months I've had three dry sockets. So it's not like I'm immune to them, but I do feel since I started doing this a few years ago, I get less and less. So now let's join the real expert in oral surgery, which is Dr. Sammy Stagnell. I'll catch you in the outro. Sammy Stagnell, welcome to the Protrusive Donald podcast. How are you, my friend? I am very good, Jess. Thanks for having me, man. 
I'm so uh, buzzing for this. Oral surgery is always a popular topic when it comes to producer variety. We've already had some great ones in the past, and we're going to delve deeper into flaps. But before we get into that, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you in your training pathway? What kind of work really, what part of oral surgery that you, you know, love to do? What's your niche within there? Yeah, for sure. Training is a long-term thing, isn't it? But as far as training goes, I'm a specialist now. So I got through uh, specialty training about five, six years ago. I'm also a consultant. So I work at East Surrey Hospital two days a week. The rest of the time, I manage things between general practice. So doing IMOS type work, so specialty referral and through the NHS, as well as balancing private referrals as well. And then subspecialty interest in implantology. So I spent most of the last 10 years building that as my niche. So traditionally a lot of oral surgeons would sort of just put implants where the bone is but i have a background with a master's a restorative master's and uh, nice. a few other bits and pieces up my sleeve so uh, yeah a few tricks to sort of help make me a sort of better implantologist i hope but that's effectively um the sort of the general day-to-day so yeah it's quite good fun mixing it up general surgery and and implantology do you restore your own implants as well yeah i still do absolutely and i think i've always I've never given it up totally. I've got a prosthodontist who I absolutely love and she's amazing. She makes me look good in so many ways. Uh, but I, I definitely think you have to keep your hand in. And I know uh, Panadith George, who's sort of been on your podcast before, he's one of those people who inspires me in so many ways. And I, I do look up to him a lot and he's a polymath and I sort of have always been comfortable in that zone. And I think until in the last few years, took a while for people to get okay with people being polymaths and I think as an oral surgeon as someone who, who does the surgical side you've got to understand the the restorative and, and the the outcome orientated aspects of it because otherwise it's moot it's completely lost I think it raises an interesting point I mean firstly I respect so much from an oral surgery background that you respect the fact that it's restoratively restoratively driven that's uh, that's amazing and that's the way it should be but when it comes to in implantology as a non-specialty there is no specialty of implantology there's no specialist in implantologist really it's a made-up term when we have people with perio background claiming that, okay, you know, we are the, the real experts in, in implants, then you have the restorative folks, the prosthodontic folk, and the oral surgery. How can you get, and, and even GDPs who do implants, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how can we be more integrated in our approach when all these different subspecialties are dabbling in implants? You, you have hit the nail on the head with that question. I am totally on board with how that question gets asked. Because I think it's asked often by the wrong people in the wrong circumstances. It's often asked as how can we control implantology? And it tends to be, like you say, specialty specific people who are asking that question rather than people asking holistically. And uh, one of my other sort of sideline jobs is I'm a council member on the College of General Dentistry. And we've written things like the training standards in implant dentistry that are due for review. And it's a question we constantly ask ourselves, how do we improve that? How do we change how people approach implantology? Because when I got into this about 12 years ago, when I placed my first implants as, as an undergrad, I was quite lucky I got to do that as part of my, my sort of general upcoming as a, as a dentist. Um, you know, I got taught by a prosthodontist um, whose daughter now is also a prosthodontist as well, who I work with on the young ITI. And, you know, uh, I, Emily I think must I be very Emily Abraham. It was, it? yes. Well spotted. Uh, yes, absolutely. Another Sheffield Love alumni. Look at that. <laughs> Crystal made. Yeah, Sheffield. Absolutely. Another Sheffield. Great. Um, so I think it's one of the few things in dentistry that means it actually makes you have to be raise your game in everything. 
I think implantology doesn't give you any leeway. Like you can choose other specialty areas. And even just if you're just doing basic oral surgery, minor oral surgery, you can get away with sort of understanding is a tooth restorable, is it not? You can tread lightly around the edges um, and, and sort of get vaguely whether or not it is or isn't. But implantology, the deeper you get, the more your knowledge base has to grow, the wider your sort of scope for it has to be. And I think there are lots of people claiming stake in it, but in the UK, we're the only country in Europe that has specialties in the way that we do almost. There's not as many specialties in many other European countries, and I'll be corrected on that if I got that wrong. But if you go to somewhere like Germany, you've got orthodontics and oral surgery. You go to Austria, so I spent a year doing an ITI fellowship in Austria, and there's there's no specialties. You're simply an oral surgeon by virtue of the fact that you work in the oral surgery department. So when I was out there for a year, all the faculty were mixed on one floor. So everyone had their offices. So we shared with prosthodontists, the period guys, the, it was the president for the European Federation of Perio was in the office opposite me, which was amazing. So I spent a lot of time um, with those guys raising my perio game. So I, I'll do connective tissue graphs. I'll sort of assess phenotypes. I'll think about the perio conditions and things because that was so important. And what they brought to the table was crucial. And, and I watched these teams, everyone handed off to everyone. Everyone knew where their cutoff was and everyone knew right this isn't for me now i've got to hand on and it just meant that nobody there wasn't infighting and it's, it's somewhere where i really want to get us in the uk because i think there is so much to be learned from that sort of background from that way of thinking and that's a much more open and collaborative approach to it. and the only people that are going to benefit are the patients and then we're not going to run out of work we still place relatively few implants as, as a as a country so there's loads of work to be gleaned we just need to approach it the right way i think Oh, thanks for explaining that. But did I catch you right that you placed your first, uh, technically you placed your first implant as an, as an undergrad? Yeah, I was a fifth year. So NEOS was running an undergraduate program in King's at the time, um, because I think the founders of NEOS were partly related to King's. So when I was a fourth year, there was sort of an option out there to sort of get involved in implants. Now, I'll take this story back even further. I'm going to try not to bore your listeners, but a lot of people ask me when I sort of got into dentistry, when I wanted to do dentistry, and I wanted to do it from a young age, no family or anything. I just, my dentist didn't hurt me. I went to the doctor for jabs, but my dentist was always nice. Um, and then when I did work experience, I ended up doing my work experience with Andrew Darwood, who is a sort of one of the gods oh my goodness. in, yeah, uh, in yeah, implantology. Yeah. So 16-year-old me on Harley Street has no clue about oral surgery, has no clue about dentistry, it's just been told all the standard spiel stuff that you get at the UCAS sort of forms and all the rest of it. Um, and I walk in and I spend a week with these guys and it blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And I sort of knew that oral sur surgery of some kind, I was like, if this is dentistry, this is then I'm in you know, sign me up now because I'm, I'm all on. And by the time I then got to fourth year, I sort of, I was uh, toying with the idea of, do I maybe do medicine as well? Maybe go max max. And I think, you know, that stage of your career, you sort of, you're flooded with ambition and enthusiasm and, and you sort of, you haven't had enough clarity or seen enough things yet to make good decisions. But this opportunity came up to, you know, who wants to try and do implants. And because it wasn't really a mainstay thing in, in dentistry, even like, you know, 15 years ago, it was happening, but it wasn't sort of something that undergrads were really talking about. Most people were trying to busy fill their quotas with composites and root canals, let alone trying to get anything else done. And I sort mm -hmm. of, me being, I, I, something I struggle with is saying no to things. So I, I was like, yes, 
straight in. Um, so I then had to go to Prof Abraham, who sort of would work up the case with me. I had to present him to all of that other stuff. So my finals case prez, I, I placed uh, two implants on it. it. was one of the nurses working in, in King's at the time. It was her dad who I got to do the implants on. So, yeah, so it was a really cool that opportunity so to do something cool. slightly different. Like you, you talk of, about quotas yeah. and, you know, when, yeah, when whilst well dentists are trying to do their, <laughs> their one quota for that molar root canal, you went ahead and placed two implants. I love that. And I think it's so important to appreciate everyone's origin story. And I, I, I repeat this theme time and time again with every guest. I'd like to spend a few minutes uh, finding out how you fell in to where you are in the, in the world at the moment in your journey. And I think it's so relevant that, hey, you had that experience with Andrew Darwood and Harley Street. Um, you, you met some people who took you under their wing to help you go above and beyond to help you as an undergrad. And you showed that interest. And then that spiraled into where you are today. So uh, amazing. I, I hope people find um, some value from that, uh, that journey and can, can model it and look up to it. So don't be, you know, don't undergrads all over the world. Don't be upset that you didn't place an implant. You know, that's, that's the norm. But appreciate that when opportunity comes knocking, take it where you can. And if you already have a, an interest from before, then then then, then go with it. Uh, so I'm glad you shared that. I'll add to that if you don't mind. Like, I think, you know, mm. I, I listened, I was listening to a podcast really recently that was talking, you know, some people talking about luck. Luck is simply preparedness for when opportunity arises. Like you've just said, that opportunity comes, you jump on board. And I think at the early stages of your career, you've got to take those steps. You've got to take those leaps and you've got to put in the mileage because all of a sudden one day, kids come along, mortgage comes along, the world approaches you in a different way and you may not have the energy and the enthusiasm, but if you can be inspired by what you're doing, it makes a heck of a difference and you'll sort of find the drive. And often it's motivation comes from seeing the results and it's simply being able to dedicate the time and, and the discipline to dedicate yourself to some of the ventures to begin with and understanding patience in those early formative years. I think so many people want to jump into implants. And I see young people come to it all the time. And, and hopefully this segues onto what we're going to talk about today. But people come and go, I want to do implants. I'm like, okay, great. How many surgicals do you do? And they're like, none. I'm like, oh my, okay, dude. No, no, no. Do not pass. Go. And I'm like, so what, what years have you done? Have you done any surgical? Have you spent any time in hospital? No, but I'm on an implant MSc. I'm like, the only people winning here are the universities. Like, they are the ones taking money. And I'm not, that's not a go at the universities because the universities have phenomenal teachers. But you're not, you haven't seen enough composites fail. You haven't managed enough patients who didn't enjoy their perio treatment. You haven't screwed up making immediate dentures. Like, you haven't done enough of the stuff that will make you good at the rest of it later down the line. So take inspiration, but be patient. And, and that's a really tricky balance, especially in today's go, go, go sort of lifestyle sammy that is real talk right there and you know i, I love the way this podcast started because it, it was very warm and fuzzy and uplifting and the story and now <laughs> we just hit them hard with the real talk i love that uh, let's because people now are getting a little bit nervous because we're, we're into the podcast now and we haven't mentioned the word mucoperiosteal yet so there we are we mentioned it now so let's let's move on uh, let's yeah. let's talk about flaps my friend so the first question i have for you really is I am not afraid anymore to raise a flap. Like go back four or five Excellent. years ago, maybe, then the thought of raising a flap was very much like, okay, it's been half an hour. The tooth's not budging. I look at my nurse, I'm sweating. I'm like, okay, get me a blade. And then she, that means to her, okay, there's no, I'm not having a lunch today, basically. So, so that was the kind of sort of background. A lot of dentists are, are like that. Like, okay, I've I, I ran out of options here and I don't want to refer in the middle of an extraction. So let me remember what they taught me in fourth year of undergrad and try and pull up some sort of flap and drill some bone and, and figure it out. Now, whilst I had better mentors and stuff, and now I'm very happy to, 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 to section teeth. And that for me, and we've covered this before as well, sectioning teeth for me was so important in getting a higher success rate and confidence 
months and now things don't phase me as, as much and and having those failures behind me those painful failures behind me that taught you uh, taught me valuable lessons and even when I was at Guy's Hospital doing an oral surgery post I saw a, an upper canine humble a consultant oral surgeon so that showed to me that actually Sometimes when you have these patchy areas, and what the way he explained it to me, you have these patchy areas of ankylosis, and you can't predict that sometimes, and and and, and th th those are just gonna be uh, really difficult. So don't you know? Don't be too upset that you can't get it out because chances are, if you're struggling, most people would struggle. You won't ever know, and and I remember seeing this as an SHO as well, watching a Maxfax consultant who I absolutely like put on a pedestal, and I watched him walk into an ENT theatre where they were doing a cancer operation to take out some premolars and he spent 45 minutes doing it i watched as a registrar one of the like the greatest surgeons i've ever worked with who's a cleft maxillofacial surgeon who made everything look easy and um, you know we walked away after an hour and a half doing four wisdom teeth and he just he turned to me and was like well that was like glass bottles and a concrete bed i was like and i was assisting i wasn't even doing it and i was sweating and it's totally that I think is having respect for the foundation. I think, but it's it's the tightrope between fear and respect, and and a lot of that and the difference is experience. The difference is simply putting yourself out there. But most people they don't see an end, a means to an end with oral surgery. They don't see a means to an end with surgical extractions. You're doing you know when you started doing vert preps and you might do crown lengthening, you've got an outcome because you've got a bigger thing that comes after all of that you've got something else that supersedes it. Whereas in oral surgery, it's just getting the tooth out. I say just, but actually, you know, <laughs> the thing that causes most fear and problems for most patients, most of their bad experiences are root canals and, and bad extractions. So surely if the PR, ever the PR exercise needed to be had in dentistry, it's about good root canals and good extractions. You know, people come in and like, oh, the dentist had their knee on my chest. I'm not that agile for one. And secondly, I don't know a, a single person teaching that technique, the, the sort of mount the patient style of removal of tooth. And, and but when I speak to most people and then especially on the implant courses that I teach on, where are people getting hung up on with raising flaps, with approaching things is they don't think far enough ahead. So the, the biggest start of stumbling block is often planning for the unexpected. So have I have a plan A, but I have B, C and D hopefully in the background somewhere. That means that we're not going to get stuck somewhere. We're not going to come unstuck. And if we do, I've talked the patient through it. I'm not keeping it from the patient either. And I think, again, it was a medical legal lecture. I went to at the British Association of Oral Surgery Conference a few years back. And they it was a barrister talking. He was like, People need to stop getting worried about owning risk because it's not your risk to own, it's for patients to own. So if a tooth is risky, if there is a three that's going to be ankylotic and different, difficult, I just talk people through my experience. I will normally tell people, look, this is how I expect it to go. These are some of the things that can happen. The 30 seconds of telling people that tends to mean that you're just sharing your experience. And if it happens, then they just look at you like you sort of you had your crystal ball out and you could tell the future. And if it doesn't, then they just think you're, you're good anyway. So, you know, telling them after is just an excuse. That was always the way it was, it was told to me, you know, just forewarn. And um, I think so, um, a friend of mine, Richard Moore, who runs an oral surgery podcast, he just did one on complications as well, which is worth a listen to for any of your, your listeners as well. And Judith, um, his colleague, I've forgotten her surname now, who is a friend and, and colleague of his as well, and who trained Richard, uh, you know, she used the phrase forearmed is forewarned. And I think that is is such an important, I hope I've got that the way right, right, right now, that is such an important <laughs> phrase. 
But I think listeners will hopefully get it that you can make assessments, but people don't treatment plan with oral surgery. So they just in their head go, tooth's got to come out. But they don't think about the anatomy. They don't think about if I'm going to raise a flap, where am I going to have to put it? Do I have all the kit ready? I get the nurses to get stuff out at the start of a session because then it's 10 quick turnarounds between getting things up because you can ad lib for 20 seconds. We're just going to get some more kit out. We're just going to make this a little bit quicker. We're going to try and speed things up because it's not playing ball. So I want to make sure that we go the right way with this as quickly as possible versus trying to talk holiday plans for 20 minutes with whilst the nurse remembers which way around <laughs> the, the water tubing goes in and you're like, and all you do is sweat more and feel worse. And then just that hiatus ruin, ruins your momentum. But it's that's the experience factor. And I think the more people do it, the more comfortable they get raising a flap. And I think you'll see that now. Like you say, you've raised a lot of flaps. You've done a lot of these now. So you st- you put I put Luxator onto tooth. Like I'll tell straight away whether or not I'm going to bother trying to just continue Luxating or not. I'll mm-hmm. sort of use feel. And, and in the same way that you'll sort of apply a certain tactility and experience to crown preps or or looking at aesthetics and assessing whether they're right or not and go, "Mm, actually, no, we're going to do something different. But people aren't using that experience. And then it becomes a vicious circle. The more you avoid it, the less likely you are to do it. And you just keep going. And then 10 years down the line, you refer everything out. And it's... And actually, it's not, that's not a practice building either. Hey guys, this is Jazz again, just interfering with this important message about extractions and how to make them easier. We did a few episodes previously talking about speed increasing handpieces, electric handpieces, and how I love them to section molars without raising flaps. It reduces your risk of surgical emphysema because the burr itself is not driven by air. So if you're looking to get a handpiece, whether it's the normal straight one and you want to use it for restorative and for extractions, or if you want to get that angled one, which is primarily for awkward extractions, but you can also use it restoratively, then check no other place than Incidental Limited. So incidentallimited.co.uk has got all these hand pieces. And if you use the code onions, that's onions with a plural, you can get 5% off. And the crazy thing is a speed increasing handpiece is just 360 pounds. That includes VAT. Screw all the companies that don't quote with VAT. Okay, so Incidental Limited, run by Chris, one of the good guys, they always quote with VAT. So it's 360 pounds, including VAT, everything, uh, and you get a speed increasing handpiece. There's no reason why in 2022, your practice should not own a couple of these in every surgery. So check it out. Go to incidentallimited.co.uk. Use onions to get 5% off on their entire stock. You know, stock up on rubber dam, wedges, tall VMs, anything you need, but it expires on 30th of September. So by before then, pass it on to your practice manager or whoever does the ordering at your practice to do a bulk order. So take advantage of this time-sensitive discount. Anyway, back to Dr. Sammy. You're so right. And I love those communication gems you shared. That I love the humor there. And in case you were multitasking and you missed it, the whole glass bottles and the concrete, that, that I love that. What a great uh, analogy. What great visualizations about some of the trickiest teeth that we've had to remove. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I am not so worried anymore. And so just reflecting back on my journey, and evolution uh, and oral surgery as a GDP. But when I, even when I am raising a flap, quite often my go-to flap is an envelope flap. So if you don't mind, Sammy, just explaining to those maybe uh, younger grads what an uh, envelope flap is. Uh, and I just want to know in, in your practice, when you are um, yeah, raising sure. a flap so, as part of your, let's say, plan A, you're going to do a flapless maybe. And then plan B, if you need to raise a flap, you will do this kind of flap. What percentage of times are you ending up doing? So we're talking non-wisdom teeth here. We're talking uh, anything but wisdom teeth. What percentage of times would you just raise a, an envelope flap? 
Yeah, so I think envelope flaps are, are the way. So those watching the video, I'm going to apologize for telling my back and those listening. I'm, I'm just going to tell you that I'm, I'm drawing some, well, badly drawn teeth at the moment um, and a broken root. And uh, so, I, you know, I assume typically this is sort of in that sort of four or five region or sort of the lateral that sort of breaks off, you know, after the post-core crown sort of tooth. Um, envelope flap is just is, is what we traditionally t typically call the single sided flap. So it's that first incision where you sort of use your blade to gently sort of trace the outline of usually the ad adjacent teeth. You can take it crestly, so sort of if you're looking from it top down and you know the, the incision is in the midline along the crest. And I often think that it's quite useful putting fingers either side. So if you're holding the buckle on the plate or the lingual and the labial, you get a feel for where your distance is so you can place your blade in the right place and often a lot of people look like sushi chefs when they're sort of doing this the way they're sort of trying to sort of fillet things and you're like what well, hang on no 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 just raise the flap um it's it's almost i think it comes from this tentative nature of wanting to do it properly but all you do is traumatize the flap and unless you're a periodontist raising a split thickness flap go to bone go down to firm contact be sincere and sort of direct with the movements that you're making because be purposeful off yeah, that's it. Perfect word. And then that's it. Because if you're not, all you're doing is traumatizing tissues. The more trauma there is, the more bleeding, bruising, swelling, soreness, discomfort people are going to get later. So that all forms part of, of what you're doing. But typically for most procedures, I think probably for 60 to 80% of stuff, an envelope works because often you can get enough reflection. And the other thing with raising flaps is you want to start and give yourself enough leeway because a lot of people will do a flap and then go right i was taught two-sided at dental school or whatever it is and like they'll do their flap now something else breaks or now you have to take away more bone now you know for example if this had a big perio defect on that tooth and the tooth in front or whatever all of a sudden you've now put your flap on compromised area that's never going to mm -hmm. support it when you put your, your incision your release your relieving yeah. incision yeah, when you put periosteum, well, you do a couple of things. One is you damage tissues around, say, adjacent teeth. And I think, again, in an era of aesthetics, if you've got nicely done crowns, you know, this is why I get my prosthodontist to put provisional crowns on anything that we're operating around for months before we get to the final things so we can connect a tissue graft or do whatever it is that we need to do to make things look nice. Because if those margins are going to change at all, and I'm responsible for that change. The last thing you want to do is on, on really nice looking crowns. And the same for some of the older population who already have gray margins and are already fed up with that, but don't want to go and replace a lot of stuff. Why make that situation worse for them? So often you can maintain those flat margins quite nicely, reposition things, replace things to where they are, because that's it. You're starting with the end in mind. This all has to go back to where it was when you started. If you've got solid bone, and it's this concept of a periosteal cuff. Max Fax guys used to talk to me a lot about this and I never understood it until I had a load of infections. And they'd often try and give themselves like a five to 10 mil cuff of, of margin. Now, in some cases, I think that's too much and you'll probably encroach on other anatomy. And, and actually, I think we can be a bit more minimally invasive, but the, the concept stands. And again, it comes from autogenous grafting. And Frank Zastro, who did, took the Kuri bone split technique a little bit further, he talks about this, and I think it's because you get this periosteal attachment to bone. Natural will stick to natural. You will get that adherence, that hemidesmosomal behavior that you want to sort of reconnect tissues. You're not going to get that if it's on the mind. But more so, again, it comes back to the planning. If that's going to break or I'm going to need to take away more bone and then all of a sudden I'm in a difficult situation, start minimal. Give yourself freedom to extend, but know where you're going to take it to.
And I think that's, that's so it's a perfectly of, good thing to, to start with an uh, envelope float and, and just follow yeah. the adjacent uh, gingival margins, you know, buckley yeah. usually. And then as and when your plan changes, you may then need to um, put a relieving incision, make it a two-sided, three-sided yeah. as appropriate. But as you said, 60 to 80% of time when you are raising a flat bend, and just out of interest, what percentage of your um, referral cases for like, you know, an upper first molar or a lower premolar, some tricky extractions that you might get, what percentage of times are you even raising a flap? Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do. You want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later. You can get all of that for less than 15 tax deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this, the Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Uh, very few. Because <laughs> often I get this sort of failed extraction. But often, like, people have done the same thing again and again. You can almost predictably do it. And people look at you like you're voodoo when you sort of tell them, did you put your applicator here? Did it then break like this? Did you then look at the fast handpiece and the long diamond? And, and and people look at you like, were you in the room? And and you're like, no, but people do these things predictably. And often it's because of the, the fear takes over. So the bad behaviors creep in and they're like, no one will know if I just picked up the fast handpiece or I'll just, you know, we'll just dribble some water from this three in one and the acrylic burr. We'll just see if that works. And like, and because people cut corners because they haven't set up, they haven't got themselves ready or prepared. They didn't anticipate it would break. And look, no one is perfect. Stuff still goes wrong on me, but it's how you carry yourself in it. And I think, you know, that candor of being able to say to a patient, look, this isn't going how we expected it to be. Hold fire. We're going to reset and we're going to restart and we'll come back to it. And, and often just having the authority about yourself and the confidence to say, it's not going right. So what I'm going to do is this. And you, you talk about referring. Um, often, like I think people are either afraid to refer because they think that we sit in our ivory towers as consultants just casting you know a shame on those who send in no we don't because we've all been there but there are some things we know that are avoidable and often i think you know you get the fear stories then people come in and go oh my dentist said i needed to be asleep for this and you're like it, it probably didn't if you the dentist just led with actually i'm not confident or comfortable doing this i'm gonna and and, and i say to patients my, my backup because i i say to patients i say to my colleagues all the time like being a gdp is probably the hardest job when it ends up on my doorstep it's only going one place in the bin so i've got a really easy job because i only do one thing being a gdp is probably one of the hardest jobs you can do hands down i think so if you turn around and said to your patients look your gp isn't going to try and manage your dodgy ticker are they they're going to send you to mm -hmm. a cardiologist I'm not going to manage this tooth because actually it's outside my skill set. You may need a, someone who can manage it if it goes wrong. Most people are fine with that and they'll respect you for it. So don't feel bad to say that to people. But I, I think it's the sort of when people skirt around the subject. But in terms of, you know, again, and I say this to the juniors who come through training, and I don't say it to sound arrogant, but the difference between me and one of the juniors is 10,000 teeth because mm, I've spent mm. the last 10 years, you know, five, five to 10 years doing it. So in that time, I've amassed enough screw-ups you know michael jordan talks about his failures quite openly like he made he missed several thousand shots he screwed up a number of games it's the same thing for me i 
done the mistakes enough times to know how it feels. So often when those broken teeth end up in my chair, if I put a luxator on it, I, I have a, I have a sense of feel that other people won't do in the same way that you will look at a splint jazz and know whether it's badly adjusted, probably without even putting articulating tape on it <laughs> because you've seen enough of them and you've done enough of them. And, and that's all that it comes down to in the same way that some people will be great. GDP is great with Invisalign. They'll look at a, a case and straight off the bat go, no, you need fixed. Go see this guy. And that's just experience. That's all it comes down to. But again, I go back to the point, if you do avoid it, you'll never get that experience. But for most mm -hmm. stuff, you can avoid it. And then again, like if you're going to add in, throw in distal relieving, and I threw in the molar there, you know, chuck it further back, chuck the distal relieving into further back. Let's just back. make it really tangible for those listening in case they've forgotten exactly what, what, what we have on the board at the moment. So we've got, let's say we've got a, a canine premolar root second premolar and the molar and then yeah. the the first premolar is, yeah. is broken it's subgingival we're going to be raising an envelope flap yes yeah, so and then now some you're going to suggest okay when might we need to extend that to a relieving incision yes yeah, so i'll put the relieving incision distally always to start with because i think in the lower arch it's less of a problem scarring is less of a problem because people you know nobody has a high lower lip line you know no very few people show off gingiva in the bottom and to be honest then you end up with recession problems so again most people have thin phenotypes anteriorly around lower central incisors so that's always going to be a tougher place to manage those so you know stick those distal relieving incisions in there rather than mesial ones and often again the longer the, that envelope the initial envelopes so if you're taking it one to up to two and a half units then you've got it got enough you don't always need to take the papilla and i think that's one of the things that most people are sort of um fallible for so you know i'll, I'll sort of draw in the papilla on my um my shonky drawing here but um, for those listening just yeah, to make it clear i mean you, you, yeah. you'd start i'll usually start off with the envelope first and and see um where you go start with and the then, envelope uh, uh, yeah. you then would add the relieving as and when required yeah, totally. That's, that's all it is. Like, you know, see what you can see. If you can't see enough, what are you going to need to see more? And if that's going to fail, what are the, again, so going back to the idea that if I can't see at this stage, where am I going to get caught out and where am I going to need to, what am I going to need to see? So say around lower premolars, you may well need to see the mental nerve if you're really getting down that low. Hopefully not, but if you need to see it and protect it, then, you know, a mesial relieving incision may be a benefit just past the canine. So you avoid the mm -hmm. anteriors. You can, you know, you can include, the, um, you can avoid the papilla. So the, the sort of sp papilla sparing type flap. So you basically imagine an oblique incision next to sort of one of these lower incisors and sort of angling the, the blade at almost like a 45 degree angle down to the bone at the level of the papilla. So you sort of leave the papilla intact between, say, the two and the three, and then you can take the rest of that incision down, and that will often spare because it, it'll have blood supply from the from the labial aspect as well. Mm. And that so, so that's one principle: don't cut touch. in the middle of a papilla. Yeah. Either um, either include the entire papilla, or include, would you say yeah. is it okay to sh uh, stop short of the papilla? I think you can stop short of it because often, like, and you'll see this. This has come more from the perio guys than anything else. So, say so you'll you'll round the tooth. Say, imagine you're on that lower four five space again. So you'll you'll sort of round the three, in, and then you'll include the papilla and then as you just come past the papilla you can then go sort of on the midline of the of the tooth and then when you're sort of because again you're thinking forwards to when you're going to repair that as well like how am i going to put that back together so do i have the right sutures for this 
am I going to be able to reconnect keratinized tissue to keratinized tissue, mucogingival junction to mucogingival junction, use anatomical landmarks and, and make sure you safeguard those anatomical, anatomical landmarks. Because again, it's all starting with the end in mind. So you're thinking forwards to what am I going to send this patient away with and what am I going to have to deal with later when they come back, if they need a new crown, if they're going to have, what's the next stage? If it's, ju- if it's just having the tooth out, you know, are they going to walk away with scars or deficits around crown mm-hmm. margins, those sorts of things? Well, I think the reason uh, I, I mentioned some of those uh, points there is just to give some principles and foundations to, to dentists who are uh, revisiting, refreshing oral surgery flaps. Yep. And I think what this podcast can't be, because you really need to be, go to a proper course, is, okay, this is a two-side, this is a three-side, this is how you raise it. That's, that wasn't the plan. But the, the plan for just a main message, I guess we want to send, is a mistake that I would have made many years ago is, okay, I'm going to raise a fl- flap now. The the flight or fight response is, 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 is inside me. Uh, again, the whole sweating, uh, find the blade, 20 minutes of talking holidays, the blade comes you're going to miss lunch and then automatically you go for okay I was uh, the only flap I remember from dental school is a three-sided flap so let me just go and raise a three-sided flap and, and that's a common mistake that GDPs might still be making nowadays and I think I just want to save everyone everyone from that maybe start with an envelope first yeah. uh, get some training get some refresher course under your belt uh, start with an envelope first and then see if you need to extend it and yeah. I think some of those foundations you covered were good there anything else you want to um, add to that before we talk about how to make yeah. the flap cleaner yeah I think the two things that I add into to what you just said are yes going courses but get some mentoring and i think mentoring is becoming something that we're shying less and less away from we've got more and more comfort with getting someone else on board to come and give us a hand to watch us do some cases and you know i i know some absolute you know pillars in the industry who will still get their mates in who they'll still pick up the phone to and and you know i have no qualms over the going next door and, and, and speaking to someone else i'm still a new consultant in the grand scheme of things I'm, I'm still very junior in my career and just because i have the name badge doesn't mean i know everything and at some point i have to be able to go you know what it's not safe actually i want to just sense check what i'm doing and that's that's you know that's consciously incompetent and that's the you know, the safest you can probably be because you know your boundaries, you know where you stand with it. So don't be afraid, I think, to go and ask for help, get some mentoring. And if you say to your, your patients, you look, you're a bit more complex, I want to bring in a colleague who can help me. I'm, I'm sort of training up to make sure that I'm better at these cases. Again, very few people mind because you're open and honest. And if they don't like it, then we'll find them, refer them anyway. So save yourself the headache because they're probably not the patients you want to try and manage when it goes wrong anyway. And the other thing is instrumentation. People go cheap. You know, people will spend mm. thousands on the weirdest stuff like <laughs> apps like they'll buy a scanner that they use twice or something like that you know and then then and and not really buy into digital but it's it's the same thing in surgery people won't spend two three grand on a decent surgical deck you know again if you're going to get into implants you do those other things that'll pay dividends same goes for things like piezo yeah you can, i use my piezo for more than just um taking teeth out i do it for all the implantology work that i do as well and, and so it's got multiple uses and, and block rubbing so my line of work it's great. I'm not saying go out and buy a piece of it, but they're a great addition. But a good surgical deck, good hand pieces that work, that are going to get looked after, that are going to get oiled. And then again, you don't need the you know the top of the line, finest you know hand instruments. But you can get really decent sort of German made ones for not very much money. And again, like Hugh Freedy, Zef, DevMed, like there are some great lines out there that yeah, they're a bit more of a premium but they don't fall apart. I've used cheap and cheerful and that stuff lasts minutes. And by the time you bought it for the eighth time, you've spent what you would have. And, 
actually you would have had something that worked much nicer, felt better in your hands, didn't constantly like lose grip, didn't lose teeth, didn't drop needles, scissors that cut, you know, stuff like that. Which just like again, because if you're there hacking away, like, you know, mm. it's it's like you're trying to start a campfire. You just it's it, again, it's these small things that just make the whole thing miserable. It's it's marginal gains, but from a different viewpoint, I think. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Now, when we come to raising a clean flap. Any top tips that you can give that, okay, we're going to be raising a, either a, a two-sided or maybe an envelope flap. Um, yeah. We don't want messy flaps. It looks like a, a dog's dinner. It looks like a, a facial trauma injury. Uh, any tips <laughs> that you can give uh, on, on yeah. raising a nice clean flap? Full thickness, yeah. mucoperiosteal. So you're, you're the first word you said was purposeful. And, and that is it. Like you're doing everything with, uh, with direction and purpose and, and meaning. You're doing it for a reason so you know get your blade down to bone to hard tissue be confident in where you're putting that blade and know where you are raise the papillae first so i tend to sort of raise the outer edges and round the margins because those are the bits that tear and those are the bits that you then don't want to sort of have to try and repair if they don't want to be what instrument are you using to raise the papilla and then and then beyond so often you know at the very least a mitchell's trimmer does does wonders but something that if you don't have one of those um sort of a medium-sized excavator works mm-hmm. because wow. actually mm-hmm. that the shape of that will get right under the papilla you can put that in contact with a bone and just peel up edges ever so slowly and that works really nicely as well um or a curette is a sort of more spoon-like version of, of an excavator isn't it um again you can get dedicated papilla elevators um boozer elevators things like that and those are, are again, really useful instruments. Uh, general Medical has a really good range. I'll big up the General Medical guys because they're very good for these sorts of things. Um, and so you can use any range of, of things. And again, like typically the ones that are fine will have this sort of like a sharp or a, a fine point on them that you can get between the teeth. So you can sort of really put that sort of arrowhead type almost configuration in underneath the papilla just try and gently sort of like flick it up and flick it open and then as you sort of work your way down the flap you sort of the width of the instrument can get wider because as you get into the meat of the flap what you're potentially doing is tearing it if you've got a very small fine instrument that you're putting a lot of pressure through a very large space because the periosteum will give eventually and so then you can sort of um, keyhole your, your flaps and things and so again that's more repair work that you don't want to sort of do unnecessarily so and, and keeping these instruments in contact with bone, not mm, on the flap, mm. because so Pinardus George again is is great at this. We've had long conversations about it. I think he talked about it in the local anaesthetic um, podcast he did with you. So listeners can rewind to that one. But he talks about hydrodissection and giving yourself enough time. Oh, for local man, that's anaesthetic. changed my practice yeah. in terms of when I'm doing wisdom. Yeah. I I love that so much. <laughs> but it's so I and again like. When I've got men trainees with me, they sort of look at me really funny when I sort of walk in, numb up, and then go and make coffee. And they're like, where's, where's, he, where's he gone? And <laughs> because like I'm going back to rethink and look at the scans, look at the x-rays, and, and replan, make sure that I'm happy in my head with everything. But I'm letting the local get to work because it'll take 10 minutes for the adrenaline to get to work and to create that vasodilation and give you that sort of clean feel that you need and for them to be comfortable and then you can come back and re-deliver more anesthetic in that time the team will prep the patient get them ready so when i walk in and scrub in i just get started and actually it saves time because again it's small talk that you don't really need to make with them and it can feel almost awkward and Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. they've been given that time to go numb when you get started they are properly numb 
and they've had mm-hmm. a bit of time to forget. And sometimes I'll do it if I'm doing it with a sedationist. I numb them as I'm as they're sort of getting started. As they give the first bolus of the Dazlam, so it tends to be a very patchy haze. And then the anaesthetist will get them really comfortable. So by the time I come back again, they're properly sedated, we're good to go. So yeah, using good local and good local technique is a big part of it, and that helps with the cleanness of the flap because I definitely mm-hmm. think you can see a difference. And we've seen you see it across all surgery. Math is so vascular, but whether it's orthognathic or otherwise, good time for your local to work makes a huge difference with how you can then handle flaps. Mm-hmm. The right instrumentation, being purposeful, keeping your instrument on the bone, like you said, and uh, correct LA techniques uh, is, is a good summary of that. But I just wanted to just uh, home in on one point before we go to the next question. The instrument, let's say we're going to use a medium-sized excavator. Can you just guide the dentist who, who may be visualizing this? If we liken that excavator to a spoon... That spoon is yep. now going onto papilla. Are you using the outside of the spoon? Are you using the inside of the spoon when you're actually lifting off that papilla? So I the will curved side or the, 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 the convex yeah, side so or the concave side? So I'll often use the convex side against bone when I'm lifting the papilla first because you're almost trying to scoop under it. You're mm-hmm. trying to sort of mm-hmm. gently lift it and flick it forward. And then you, you spin it around and get the toe or the sort of the tip of that spoon down onto bone and sort of gently sort of tunneling and and what i tend to find as well is most people will stick into one area of lifting that flap and that's when they get tears and things because the rest of the flap's not mobilizing so sometimes it's worth going around to other areas of the flap and seeing what will start to raise and what will start to move because as you start to get more mobility in the flap you'll get more of it raised and i'll often use tissue forceps so the same as you would be doing for when you're suturing I'll use those to sort of hold that leading edge of the flap. Again, it's about control, so making sure that you've got control over where that flap's going. And as you sort of hold it and you gently apply some pressure and pull, you can get your elevator down onto that bone and squirrel in underneath it, and that will again help to sort of push up and to raise it. So you're gently working your way around it and taking some time. And I think people underestimate, you know, again, it's it's knowing where your patient's there. So some of the perio patients, if we're doing sort of clearances and then coming back to them for um, for full arch work or whatever, some of those patients have got such inflamed tissues that by the time it all heals, it's really scarred up. It's really tethered. It's very rare. And, and again, even in the ones that sort of you look at the ones who've been wearing dentures for years and the flabby ridges, similar sort of stuff. These are sort of quite traumatized tissues. So sometimes it can be quite hard. So don't underestimate how difficult it can be to raise the flap because no ex- no two extractions are necessarily the same and and that will sort of have an implication on what's underneath and again it goes you know if you're raising a flap and you've say you're raising the flap and there was a socket there you you know we I talked about putting your blade down um quite decisively but often what scares people is that they put the blade in and suddenly it drops into where the socket was well again that's where I, you know I mentioned earlier on putting putting your fingers either side or where the palate is and say the buckle bone is knowing where that midpoint is okay fine you're going to be safe but it's okay to go to bone and to use again you you can use a curette to try and scoop some of them out danny boozer from burn he talks often about you know in the if you're doing an early placement with an implant for example and you're raising that flap that f- tissue is really immature so taking that out of the socket moving it buckley he, he calls it the free free gingival flap uh, because you know you're not taking it from anywhere else you've got that tissue and it adds to the bulk buckley as well so use that tissue if you can if you need to brilliant uh, and then last thing we want to uh, cover so we, we wrap up is uh, talk us about uh, i mean uh, i think we're gonna ho- do a whole another episode on, on suturing that kind of stuff but i just want to just focus on uh, armamentarium uh, the blade 
Is there yep. just the one for GDP? Uh, is it just the 15? Uh, and, and can you just talk about 15C versus 15 normal? Is And, and how about yeah. one more thing, which I actually people have asked me for is, you know that uh, I usually call it the putty knife, but it is actually a blue sterile blade that comes in a packaging. I use it for my putties. But the first time I worked in this practice, and I said, 12, can you get me the like blade? The no, uh, so that, that's one I use for uh, composite. I mean, an actual, it's actually a 15 blade on a plastic handle right that's oh, like yeah. it's, it's, it's sterilized it's got an expiry date on it uh, but the first time i asked for a blade in this practice the nurse handed me this i'm like no i want it on a on a metal blade and i want the the blade yeah. open from a package and, and stuck on now that got me thinking hang on a minute it, 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 am, am i just being very old school are, are dentists actually using this disposable blade which i usually use for putties is that acceptable i, I don't know i use them um okay, because sweet. again not everywhere has them and it's I think it's being versatile. And again, sometimes, like, I'll be honest, they're not the most comfortable. I prefer round handled blades and I like a certain feel to it, like the pen type ones. I find that the, the feedback's much better and I can be more dexterous with them. I can sort of change the angles in a nicer way. Um, I don't shy away from them. And I think if it just gets you going and doing it again, then great. They don't make that in 15 C I shape. Was, I was I not sure. I, 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 no one's yeah. ever taught me to use that for. So I was just unsure <laughs> and I didn't want to do the wrong thing. So, yeah. you know, already, so, you know, you're raising a flap, you want to do it well. So I was like, no, no, get me the proper surgical kit out. Let me use the, the blade I'm used to using. But it's, it's good yeah. to hear, have that reassurance that if you have that pre-sterilized number 15 blue, that's usually, well, then the one I use light blue in color, then I, I know exactly you know, brands out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's, 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 that's legit. You can use that, right? Yeah, no, you can definitely. Amazing. I mean, there's the you know they people will use them in A and E. People will use them all over. Like it's not wrong to use it. But again, like you know, to go out and buy a nice scalpel handle will set you back like thirty to fifty quid. You know, I know people who spend more on coffee in a month. You know, I, I just think <laughs> there's the, the you know if that makes your life easier, then just buy one, and then you can use any blade you want as well because they're all universal sort of like uh, fittings. So. I just you know there's no you can, you can shortcut it and if you want to get used to get sort of yeah, so what and some practice if you work in lots of practices then some might have different things but again if you're moving around working in lots of practices you might want to start investing in your, your own kit anyway so i think yeah the the scalpel blades 15c is my preference because i think it's a finer blade so it's the same shape as a 15 just a smaller width so it has a, a smaller cutting sort of length on it um and a smaller tip so it's just shrunk down 15 and I prefer those. I feel like you are in a much a finer way. You're managing the flap in a much finer way and, and raising that nicer. So that's my preference. I started using, I've now gone and forgotten the number, whether it's 11 or 12. I think 11 is the sharp pointy one and, and 12 is the sort of curved sickle one, if I've got that Super right. curved one, yeah. Um, yeah, and they're quite useful because, again, if you start getting into or uh, like implantology and you're doing lingual flaps to sort of raise uh, for, for bone grafting, you you can't get in there otherwise um, and same for things like taking connective tissue from the tuberosity sometimes they're quite useful on a palate if you're ever doing things like ectopic canines and flaps there so it's worth having a pack like i, I seem to collect packets of sort of um, blades and things and then you can get into microblades and all sorts of stuff but again that's more sort of adventurous and i think 15c will cover you for the vast majority of stuff and i think that that's 
totally okay and just get started with that. Well, I learned something new today that you can use that blue uh, blade and I will apologize to my nurse when I get there for my afternoon <laughs> shift today as the first thing I do. Uh, so, so thanks so much for sharing that with me. And honestly, you gave so many communication gems. Uh, you're, you're very funny. I enjoyed your humor today. Uh, please tell us where we can follow you on Instagram. You mentioned about um, implant courses. Please tell us about your involvement with that. Uh, tell us how we can reach out with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Jess. Um, yeah, and, and like you say, the armamentarium side, I think we could keep going. So we'll, we'll, I'll hold you to this and I'll, I'll invite myself back. We'll do another one if you want. But in terms of reaching out, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm Mr. Underscore Oral Underscore Surgery. So Mr. Oral Surgery. And I'm on Twitter as well as at Sammy Sagnall. So you can heckle me there and on LinkedIn as well. And as for courses, I am in the midst of setting up some new oral surgery courses i'm going to be doing with a few colleagues of mine and we're looking at developing a mentoring network because everything we've talked about today is is sort of the real struggle and you can go and implant courses but the feedback that i've had from a lot of the senior guys the big names in implantology is that most people aren't doing the basics so for me my my, my tagline earlier here first is you know being better at basics that's what i want people to be i want people to get the simple stuff right and then progress and then grow and, and elevate themselves from there. But just come back, like you said before, touch base, mentor, refresh. You can do that umpteen times and, and you'll never sort of tire from it. And again, learning it from a few different people, which is why we want, we're building this mentor network, because we appreciate the fact that there are more than one way to skin the cow. There's more than one way to elevate the molar. So I think you, you want to hear it from a few different people and find what works in your hands so you, you get comfortable with that. As for implant courses at the moment, predominantly I'm t teaching on the Paul Tipton um, year one course, which is really good. Uh, so I definitely recommend that. Um, and I contribute to a few others here and there. So if you follow me online, you'll sort of you'll see something. Yeah, pop up, definitely. So. Well, I'll put the link to to follow you on Instagram and LinkedIn. But also, if we, you know when you have any links that you can send to me, Sammy, I'm gonna stick them in the yeah, show notes course. so Absolutely. people can just quickly click on. That'd be great. I really enjoyed our chat today, and I think I, I, I you know, I think we got what we wanted out of it because it's unrealistic to explain through a podcast format all the different types of flaps. But I think people will walk away just thinking a bit more about the plan for surgery, for oral surgery. The fact that there's even just learning you as an oral surgeon the percentage of times that you're actually using a flap and when you're using a flap what's your what's the main go-to flap i think that's going to hold a lot of value for a lot of people uh, and then just a little, little nuances about blade which i discovered today thank you so much for, for that uh, and the communication stuff you, you shared today was really valuable thank you so much for your time today no that's a real pleasure i think my absolute takeaway is going to be just plan you plan for everything else don't stop planning in this plan the complications plan your approach plan your escape and those are things that are going to sort of make things more comfortable because when it happens it's not a complete unknown, so, de so definitely. But Jazz, thanks so much for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a really good chat. So It's been really fun. Thank you. Well, there we have it, guys. You can use that blue blade after all. And I shouldn't have corrected my nurse. So there we are. Now I know. Uh, and I hope you found value from that. It was great that for those who were watching, you managed to see him draw. For those who are listening, I'm sorry that it was a little bit of a visual episode that we didn't get to explain certain elements of it. But you can always go back on YouTube to check out exactly those parts where he's drawing certain figures. I think that might be helpful for you. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and if it was helpful to you, please do give it a rating on your app, whichever app you listen to. Or if you're watching on YouTube, do hit that subscribe and a thumbs up button. Leave a comment, any questions you want. I always do get the guests to come and support you guys on YouTube. Or sometimes if I know the answer, I'll always try and help you out. Thanks so much and I'll catch you in the next one.